Oh, thank you, thank you. I know what you're thinking. There's an old guy with way too much free time on his end, <laughs> which may be true. All right. Well, I hope you all had a great day. We did. We had a wonderful day, so, so nice to be together in this beautiful place. Um, just uh, as a recap so that we know what we're, what we're working on this weekend and where we're going, um, I'll put this back up here. This is, uh, we're here, all of us, because all of us need to nurture our creative spirit within. And I know that this came up in your small groups, um, and I don't know where this rumor was going around, but some of you are under the impression that we're trying to nurture our creative <laughs> spirit. And I want you to know that's not true, and I don't know how that got started. That's a whole different thing, the, the creative spirit. But. Nurturing our creative spirit, and again, the reason that we're doing that is because it's within our creative spirit that we uh, collaborate with our maker, and without that collaboration, we can never uh, fully become the people that we were created to be. Now, I, I wonder if in the small group as well, I wonder if, uh, I would be surprised if somebody didn't say, you know... These are not the years in my life that I can be thinking about creativity <laughs> a whole lot. I look at, the, at my children's <clears throat> lives and their schedules, and many of them are your ages. I mean, I'm, I don't mean many of my, many, my children are the age of many of you is what I meant to say. I only have two kids. But uh, their families, the, it, it's so hectic. I just wonder how they even make it through through, I don't know how they make it through a week sometimes. So it may not be the time to be thinking about creativity a lot. But uh, the, pro the reason that that thought maybe came to your mind is it's, it's difficult to think about, even to think about the word creativity without thinking of it connected to some sort of an artistic expression of that creativity. Uh, but I want you to know that great painting and great parenting come from the very same place. Uh, they both require the same things. They both require skill and patience and practice and perseverance and devotion and experimentation and failure and discernment. And they involve the same creative process. Great painting is the same as great parenting. So what is it that we, um, that we do? How can we uh, work at nurturing that place of, of that creative spirit within us that's woven into our genes that all of us have, but that gift that maybe has been left unopened for a while? Simply because we find ourselves uh, often in such a, a hectic place with our lives. Um, do you remember I was explaining to you uh, this morning, it, it seems like several days ago to me, but I was explaining to you this morning about how I, I was looking at my work over 40 years and going, how did I come up with this stuff? How did this actually happen? And I reverse engineered that process. To, and in the process I discovered, in the process of doing that, I discovered that I had been practicing for 40 some years a very a simple a creative process, and so I wrote it down, what I had actually been doing, and then I thought, is this it? I think this is it. I think this is what, how, I've been, how I've done this. And I would share it with other um, creatives, most of them writers, uh, comics, uh, or uh, preachers, teachers, um, 
a, a playwright, a screenwriter, a novelist. I, I shared it with them, and I was amazed to see their eyes open widely uh, and, and have them respond by saying, oh my gosh, that's what I've been doing. I, I've been doing that my whole my whole life, in writing all these books or in writing these screenplays, I've been doing that very... Th I wish I had known that. I wish I'd known that. So the process was it might have been easier to do, or I might have been able to actually create more had I known that. Um, so I put together an online course, which, by the way, is available to any of you online. It's called Mastering the Craft of Creativity. If you, any of you are interested, it's about... It takes a, you know, a, a few months to get through it, and it's... it's uh, it's pretty, it's fairly extensive, but if any of you are interested, just let me know, and I'll, I'll give you a code to get a cheap price. I don't know, remember what it is, but it's certainly less than what the, Pete paid for it, so I think that's the, <laughs> that's the important thing, the selling point here this weekend, so, uh, but I, I created this course to help aspiring creatives, which is not exactly what we're doing here this weekend, but in the process, I... Um, I discovered some important things about, I believe, about nurturing our creative spirits within. And, and so here's the quick elevator version of what I, I teach in my course. I tell uh, students, you may not have a master's of creativity degree, but you can get one. That's the way I say it. You can get one. G-I-T. It's, it, it's an acronym for the three uh, disciplines of creativity. They are uh, grab. I'll give this to you here. They are grab interrogate, and transform. So what is it that I'm asking students to grab? Um, I'm asking students to grab anything that grabs them emotionally. So if a thought goes, goes through their head, and that thought connects with their emotions in some way, it, whether it's a big way, like if it's a thought that makes you cry or makes you laugh out loud, obviously that's, you, you're going you're gonna to probably notice that. But also to, to start to notice more subtle things. So you have a thought that goes through your mind, you hear something, you see something, you feel something, you smell something, you taste something, and a thought goes through your mind. And, you and as a result of that, you feel something. I I'm suggesting grab that. Now, often, after I give this assignment, students will come back a day or two later, and they'll say, I got nothing. I got, I got nothing. I say, what do you mean you got nothing? Nothing grabbed me emotionally, which, which frankly doesn't surprise me all that much because I think it's safe to say that many of us are not really very emotionally aware of what's, of what's going on. I think it's fair to say that often we're, we, we're, we're so distracted by so much going on around us that we don't even know what it is that we're feeling. We're feeling things that we're not even, but we're not, we don't even know what we're feeling. We're not emotionally aware. So uh, what do we do about that? How do we start, uh, instead of being emotionally asleep, how do we wake up? Um, and how long does that take? And I know specifically how long it takes. I've discovered it takes three weeks. It takes 21 days to become emotionally aware and to start to wake up. I know this because neuroscience teaches us that we, if we work on any one thing in a, in a, a, a very, if we work on something hard for five or 16 minutes a day, if we really give it our attention, Five or 16 minutes, five to 16, not five or 16. Five, yeah, choose five. That's a much better deal. <laughs> five to 16 minutes a day. 
if you focus on something and work on something in your mind or with your hands or, or whatever you're doing, if 5 to 16 minutes a day of hard work in 21 days exactly, you develop a new neural pathway. It takes 21 days to do that. They can, and it wasn't there when you started. There was no neural pathway there. You did this for 5 to 16 minutes a day for 21 days. Now you have a neural pathway. It's not a, and that is what we call, by the way, it's what we call a habit. It's not a strong one. But if you practice that cycle then three or four more times, you have a strong habit. And by the way, that's a really good thing. Strong, at good, strong, good habits, bad habits are horrendous, but really good habits, strong habits are, they're wonderful. And we depend upon them. We save ourselves so much time and so much effort by having good, good habits. We are creatures of habit. All of us are. If you, if you don't believe it, think about when you get out of the shower and you dry yourself off, it's choreographed. You do it the same way every time, precisely. You put the towel here, you put the towel there, and you, it's, it's the same. You do the same thing every time. When you get up in the morning, you have a right shoe and a left shoe, most of you. When, uh, when you put one of those shoes on, it's always the same one. You always put the right one on first or the left one on first. If you don't believe it, try it tomorrow. Switch it up tomorrow. It'll wreck your whole day. I promise you. <laughs> so, we're creatures of habit. So um, I, you develop this as you start to grab things that grab you emotionally. In 21 days or in, within three or four months at the longest, you develop this strong habit. And what used to be really take a lot of effort to grab this stuff, like, oh, I don't know if I'm getting, I don't know if I feel, I don't know if I'm here, if there are any thoughts that are making me feel anything. After uh, three or four months of doing this, it gets easy. It becomes automatic. And you start to really wake up. You start to wake up. And then that list of stuff that you've, that you've grabbed. And by the way, when I say grab, I mean write it down. Or, as I do, speak it into your phone, into a, a, a file that you have, so that you don't forget it. And what you're, what you're writing down, uh, all of you aspiring creatives, if, if you were taking my class, what you're writing down are not very impressive. It's not stuff that looks very important at all. It's not stuff that even makes a lot of sense or even means anything to you, but you just write enough. It's not even a full sentence. Just write enough to remember what it is that you, that you want to, that, that happened to you. So you write it down. For, so I, I have some examples here. These are from my, I have several grab files, but I just grabbed some off the top of the list. I just kind of shot through and grabbed some. Uh, number one, uh, the African children's toy. That's what I wrote. Hitting deer, shuddering fur, smell of the airbag. That was another one. The little girl in Tyrone. That was a memory that I had of a little girl who was abducted when I was 12 years old. I didn't even know what that meant, but I, I realized it later what it was. It, remembering her, I, it, it grabbed me. Nothing rhymes with the word month. Now, how did that grab me emotionally? It fascinated me. It just fascinated me. Like, no, really? So I started to try. Uh, I don't think there is. Uh, my new shoelaces. Does the Pope poop in the woods? That was from, uh, I should explain that. <laughs> That's from uh, somebody saying, to him, Will you, does that make you angry? <laughs> you know, is the Pope Catholic? 
Or does a bear poop in the woods? And I got thinking about that. And thought, well, that'd be funny if some of those got mixed up. So that's been a few years. That's gone nowhere. It's uh, still sitting in my list. So the, uh, basketball on the back of the rim. Uh, these all grabbed me emotionally. They fascinated me or they made me sad or they impressed me or they made me smile or grimace, grimace as was the case with hitting the deer uh, recently. Uh, or they amaze me like the basketball on the back of the rim. That's what I wrote, basketball on the back of the rim. I'll show you a picture. This is the basketball on the back of the rim right there. I was explaining to my, uh, one of my 14-year-old grandsons that uh, Rick Barry used to shoot his foul shots, a Hall of Famer, one of the greatest foul Well, he's in uh, Hall of Famer, one of the greatest basketball players, but also one of the greatest foul shooters. He would shoot them underhand. Um, and he said, really? And I said, and it, and it worked? I said, oh, yeah. I said, it was really soft. I said, Let me just try. So I threw, I threw up an underhand shot. It landed there and stayed there. It didn't, it didn't move. I couldn't believe it. I, I mean, ha, have any of you ever seen anything like that before? Have, have you seen it? That's pretty, it's got to be pretty rare, though. And I mean, it's inflated, fully inflated. It's not like it was a mush ball or anything. It went up there and spun like once and just stopped. I couldn't believe it. So that fascinated me. Um, it, that, that, that was a, that's an example of touching me emotionally. So I wrote it down. It doesn't mean anything. I don't know how I'll ever use it, although I just used it now to, uh, to explain to you what it means to, to grab something. So all these things grab me uh, emotionally. Uh, then the second step is that you interrogate What's it, why does an interrogate, what, what, what does it mean to interrogate? It means to ask questions. An interrogator asks questions um, to get to the truth. So uh, you inspiring creatives in my class, uh, aspiring creatives in my class, um, you would ask, you would, look, you would look down through this list, you'd peruse it a couple times a week, and one or two or three of them would jump out at you above the other ones. And you, you interrogate those. Why did you grab me? Why do you still grab me? How... What, what could you be? How could I use you? Are you a song, a painting, a poem, a podcast? Are you a, a character in my novel? And an answer comes. It might come really quickly. I mean, like in minutes after you've grabbed something, and you know, that's it. That is it. That happens, by the way, for, I've, I've had preachers tell me, that's happened to me several times um, when I've gone to my list uh, and looked at it, and boom, I've got it for that illustration that I need. It's Thursday night, and Sunday is coming, and I've got to have that, and there it is. Um, that's that coveted moment that all creatives understand. It's called, it, it's the aha moment. And the aha moment is where an idea, or excuse me, a thought that you grabbed and wrote down becomes an idea then that you can use. And then the next step is you, you transform it into whatever it's supposed to be. So if you're an engineer, it might end up being a, a medical device. If you're a script writer, it's a Broadway play. If you're a teacher, it's an illustration. Uh, if you're a financial advisor, it's an analytical tool maybe. If you're a parent, it's a creative disciplinary strategy maybe. Um, but, but that's what you do. You grab that thought and you interrogate it until you have that aha moment you go, I get it. I understand what I'm supposed to do here. This is the creative process. It's, uh, and, and uh, any creative I've talked to says, well, yeah, it's a, I do a little variant on that, but this is basically uh, what it is. We, so how does this apply to us in terms of nurturing our creative spirit? We can't begin 
to understand what God's creative process was in creating all that there is. But I wonder if it might be similar in some ways to what I've described here. And the reason I say that is because we are created in God's very image and in his likeness. And he's woven this creative spirit, this place, this process, he's woven it into our genes. Um, and it's there that our creative spirit, in our creative spirit, that he desires to, invites us to collaborate with him. Um, it's there that he speaks to our heart, saying, I have something for you here. Listen to me. I'm speaking to your mind. I'm putting a thought in your mind. Can, can, you, can you see it? I'm, I'm making you feel something. It's not, it's not a big feeling, but it's, it's there. I'm moving you emotionally. Can you feel it? Can you hear it? And, and sadly, um, I think often we don't because we're just so distracted and not emotionally awake. We're, we're emotionally asleep. But sometimes we do. You all have. Haven't you? I know you have. Haven't you had that thought in your... Uh, would you, haven't you become aware of a thought in your mind where all of a sudden, oh, there's a thought in my mind, and I'm feeling something here. Haven't you felt an emotional tug um, and heard God saying in your head, I, I think maybe you need to try a different approach with something here in your family or in your marriage or in your work. You maybe need to try something different here. Um, you need to talk to that person. You need to call that person. You ever had that thought? You, need, you really need to give that person a call. Oh, yeah. You, you need to write that person a check. That's what you need to do. You need to, uh, you need to sponsor that child. That would be... Uh, you, you need to, I'm, I'm putting this, head, this thought in your, in your head. You're feeling that. Um, you need to... You need to smile at that person. You need to ask that person how they're, how they're doing. What if we actually did those things when we heard them? Or if we weren't sure about them, what if we actually wrote them down or spoke them in? In other words, we grabbed them. Because if you don't grab them, they will be forgotten. You will never think of them again. They'll be gone. But if we grabbed them, if we wrote them down or spoke them in, what if we spent 5 to 16 minutes a day Asking the Holy Spirit to, to, as we perused our list, to make this, to have some of those things jump out to us that we should be paying attention to, especially, to help us understand what they mean. What, what if we spent that time interrogating the, that, that list of things that we've grabbed, those thoughts, and ask questions like, why do I keep getting this impression? Why won't that go away? What is it that you want me to do with this? Is this a word from you I should share? Is it, is it a gift that I should give? Uh, is it an improvement that I should make? It is, a, is it a relationship that I should begin or, or end? Is it a conviction that I should heed or, or a prayer that I should pray? What if we did this until it became habit? 
until it became effortless, automatic. What would be like? What would that be like? I, I tell you what it would be like. It would be like it would be like waking up. I believe that we would have so many thoughts in our minds. We would hear God speaking to us all the time. We would feel God speaking to our heart if we took that time to intentionally wake up. Now listen, it would be wise then when you have thoughts in your mind, it's wise to test those, make sure that they are in alignment with who you know God to be and who his word says that he is. You, you, uh, you'll want to pray about a lot of those things. When you come back and you're interrogating it and, and you're hearing things again, you should be praying about those things or, or talking uh, to a faithful friend or spouse about that and saying, I keep getting this impression. I keep getting this thought. What do you think? Do you think this is that, that God is saying to do this or that? We would, we would wake up. And then when we did, we would experience that aha moment. We absolutely would. This is the process. It's woven into our genes. As we interrogated this, as we prayed about it, as we shared it with others, as we, as we studied God's word around it and considered it, we would have this aha moment where we would say, I got it. I, I know what this is. And then the next thing would be, well, what is that transformation then? What do you do with that? Um, and that would be, uh, we, we would be able to transform what we now understand into uh, acts of kindness or forgiveness or charity or service or contrition or confession. Uh, we could transform what God is saying to us into uh, a new job or into a move to a, a new city or a completely different strategy with our kids. You, some of you are dealing with some really, really, really difficult issues with, with your kids and feeling it's so easy to feel so lost and to not know what the best thing to do. But as you interrogate that, uh, God will make those things clear to you, and, uh, and then you transform that into that, into that, uh, into that action, maybe. Um, it, I mean, people have, have said to me um, it resulted in, in, in adoption. We had no idea we were going to do this, result in adoption, or a foster child that never even considered this before, but we heard God speaking, we felt that, and we realized that we had to do this, but we need to wake up in order to do that. Um, so this collaborative process that we're invited into in our, this creative, in our creative spirit, uh, this process, we have to have a couple things to make that work well. We have to have good communication with the one we're collaborating with. That's part of what we've been talking about here. And we also have to have a strong relationship. You can't have a good co collaboration without a relationship. When I was growing up in, in, uh, as a little boy, this whole idea of having a relationship with God was uh, pretty, pretty central to everything that, that happened in our church there. And I remember sitting around a, a Sunday school table when I was five or six years old, uh, seven or eight years old. And I was sitting with my two friends, Kurt and Phil. I had two friends. And uh, our Sunday school, school teacher, Mrs. Johnson, L.V. Johnson, she was very old at the time. And... Um, she just died a few years ago, actually, so she wasn't that old, but she seemed, <laughs> seemed, that, seemed that way to us. But uh, she was telling us about God this day in Sunday school. I think it was part of her job description to do that. And um, she was telling us about how God loved us so much that he was willing to come down to earth disguised uh, as this little 
baby Jesus. Really effective disguise, by the way. It's, it's like hardly anybody knew this was God. He grew to be a young boy just like you three, but different than you three. Do you know why? Because he never sinned like you three have. <laughs> Seems a little aggressive to me now. <laughs> never sinned like you three. And then grew to be a young man just like your dad's, but different than di- da- your dad's. You know why? Never sinned, not even once, and then allowed himself to be crucified on a cross, not for his own sins, because he didn't have any, remember, boys? But he did it for your sins and my sins, too. But you know what the good news is? He didn't stay dead. God brought him back to life, showing he is more powerful than death and able, if he wishes, to offer us a gift of life that would never end. Would you like to ask Jesus to give you that gift of life? Uh, even today, would you like to do that, Kurt? My buddy Kurt was coloring in a picture of Noah, not particularly well, and um, pretended that he hadn't heard what she said. How about you, Philip? Would you like my buddy Philip? Kind of a dark, troubled boy. He was coloring in the rainbow, various shades of brown, and actually hadn't heard anything in a number of weeks. How about you, Bobby? Would you like to do that? She said, boys, put, put your crayons away. Bobby's going to pray this prayer. And you can pray this too if you want to. And I prayed this simple prayer. Uh, I, I, I remember it. I remember that I confessed my sins. I don't remember what they were. Uh, they became far more clear later in my life, actually. But I remember confessing my sins, thanking Jesus for dying upon the cross for my sins. Uh, and I said that, and thanking him for, that, for thanking God for raising him back to life. And then I know that I said, I want you to come into my life, uh, into my heart, and make me your boy from this moment on. So thankful for that. Um, The miracle in my life I've recognized, and I'm not the first to say this, but it's true for me. The miracle in my life is not the gutter that God yanked me out of somewhere. It's all those gutters that he kept me out of in the first place. So I'm so thankful I'm so thankful that your kids can be here in this place and, and hear, uh, hear this message here because God speaks to us. I remember I shared this story about around, sitting around the Sunday school table once at a big youth gathering, 10,000 kids. 5,000 kids came into this arena and, and, we, and there was stuff, music and stuff, and then I spoke and I shared that story as a part of what I was saying. And afterwards, I was surrounded by denominational people I could tell because they were in suits and um, they said to me, Bob, you know that story you just told about the Sunday school table? Is there another story that you could tell instead of that for this second group that was coming in after them? And I said, well, yeah, is there, is there a problem with that? And they said, well, it's just that some in our fellowship question whether a, a seven or eight-year-old would know enough about God or understand enough to be able to make a decision like that for the rest of their life. We just question that process. Well, I wasn't going to win any arguments, so I, I did some, something else. But here's the truth. God speaks to whomever he wishes, whenever he wishes. And um, he can speak to your children maybe more clearly than he can speak to you. Um, so I'm so thankful that God called me as he did. However, I would say this, too. Um, I'm, there were things about being, though I'm thankful for that, there are things about being a, a church kid I did not particularly appreciate. Um, uh, the greatest of these probably was um, with the preaching. And I, sh- I shouldn't complain because I was just a kid. What do I know about preaching? Um, and we had a, I sh- also shouldn't complain because we had an interim pastor. An interim pastor is a pastor you have for a short while while you're waiting for your permanent 
pastor to arrive. Uh, he was our interim pastor for six years. <laughs> Luke 12 was his favorite text. I, I remember that after all this time because he did a six-year series on Luke 12. <laughs> Luke 12 was the text where, where Jesus says primarily to his disciples, but they heard him clear in the back, one day all that you have hidden will be revealed. One day all you have done in the darkness will be shouted from the rooftop. One day all that you have done uh, in, in secret will be shown in, in, in public. I didn't like that verse, even as a, as a small boy, because I'd read those verses and I'd go, oh, shoot, you know. <laughs> there were things I didn't want my mom and dad to know about. There's still things I don't want them to know about, and I thought, well, I may as well tell them. They're going to know. Uh, I, I didn't like the, that verse back then. Uh, Jesus is talking, of course, about a judgment day when all that I wouldn't want you to know about me. That's a devastating thought. I can't even relate to uh, uh, such a thing. And, and then I hear this voice in my head. This thought goes through my head saying, oh, yes, you can, Bob. Remember the Christmas concert. Annual elementary school Christmas concert, big deal in our little town. Every September 8th or 9th, all 400 of us in the elementary school would begin preparing for the annual elementary school Christmas concert. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. We sang in September with the windows wide open and the mercury climbing near 98, 99 degrees. Chestnuts roasting on an open fire. We fluted in October with the sweet smell of burning leaves beckoning beyond the playground. We wish you a Merry Christmas. We rooted like a cheer at the last home football game in November, and then it was December, and the pressure was on. You've got to sing, children, Miss Nagel would say, wiping the sweat from her brow. In one week, all of your parents shall be seated out here. And if you just stand on these risers and mumble as you are now, it is you children. You children. Look at me. Look at me. It is you children who shall feel foolish, not I. This was a lie that Miss Nagel told us every year for motivational purposes. And it worked pretty well, especially for those of us first and second grade. We didn't know any better, so we'd sing a little louder, only to discover, of course, that the exact opposite of what she said was actually the truth, huh? Hey, if you are one of 400 mumblers, you don't feel foolish if you're mumbling. You feel foolish if you're singing. <clears throat> if, on the other hand, you are the director of a 400-voice children's choir singing Chesna's Rosing on a Nomenier. Then you feel pretty foolish. You've got to sing, children, now look at me. Whenever Miss Nagel said, look at me, I would feel these little giggle bubbles coming up like I was going to laugh because, you know, shoot. We were already looking at her. <laughs> if Miss Nagel was in the room, folks, we were pretty much looking at her. She was to us a giant. Miss Nagel was the largest woman, or man for that matter. <clears throat> That any of us had ever seen, she wore her hair high on top of her head with a shape and texture not unlike that of spun cotton candy. She wore elegant black pointy, pointy glasses with precious gems, emeralds, rubies, diamonds. The real thing right, right there. And at the base of her many chins, <laughs> she wore a string of pearls that looked like they connected her head to her trunk. You've got to sing, children. Now look at me. We were looking at her already. Now sing it like this. No possible way. Miss Nagel was an operatic wannabe, folks. She went to Juilliard School of Music for a week. 
there's no way we could sing it like she did, especially laughter spraying out our second grade nostrils. So all of us felt very nervous. December 17th, seated in our classroom chairs, looking at a reflection in the window that usually went out to the playground, but it was light in here, dark out there, 7.30 in the evening, so you could see yourself. That was different. And then somebody came to the door. I don't recall precisely who it was, but I do remember it was a woman. And she said, it's time. Long lines of nervous children walking down the long primary corridor, turning left by the Johns and down that long secondary corridor, down that low stairway and th through the girls' locker room. There was some laughter. Up the stairway, across the center of the gymnasium, down the stairway, through the boys' locker room, up the stairway, across the hall, and through the cafeteria, down, I don't know, eight, nine flights of stairs maybe, and through that hot, hot boiler room, up several flights and through the teacher's lounge that smelled so funny, and then up another long flight of stairs onto the backstage where Miss Nagel met us with kind words of encouragement. Now sing out, children. I took my place, second row, center stage, and waited at least another three minutes till the last kindergarten boy found his mark, and our parents burst into applause. I was sure Miss Nagel was beaming with pride because we had yet to sing one note, people, and already they were clapping for us. And then Mr. Pellegrini, our principal, took the microphone, and after several moments of fairly severe feedback, he finally managed to say, Welcome, parents, and now would you join me in greeting our marvelous choir. And their wonderful director, Miss Henrietta Nagel. And again, our parents burst into applause. But no Miss Nagel. We stood on the stage, all of us silently staring at our parents. As our parents sat in, in their chairs, silently staring at us. While we stared at them. <laughs> staring at us. The little kindergarten girl in the front row, you know, the really tiny one with the severely drooping white tights. She went like this. Then our heads turned in unison. We saw Miss Nagel coming through the backstage door, frantically adjusting her skirt, tucking in her blouse. When she was sure she looked her very best, she looked back at us and said, now sing out, children. And she walked to center stage where she turned toward the audience, and she bowed. It was at this very moment that all 400 of us in the choir realized that something was terribly wrong. Those speaking for myself, I, I, I was not entirely sure what it was. Apparently, Miss Nagel had tucked the bottom of her skirt into the top of her girdle before me, <laughs> not six feet away. Indescribable, actually indecipherable for a second grade boy, was this abstract sculpture of stockings and straps and buttons and dimples and sort of a white material like my sister's bathing cap. I was not entirely sure what this was, but somehow I just sensed this ought not be on our elementary school stage. <laughs> the little kindergarten girl started to say, Miss Nagel, you're, but before she could finish, Miss Nagel spun around. 
and led us into deck the halls. I don't think we sang it very well. Speaking for myself, I was so terribly preoccupied with the commotion in the front rows. I I pretty much stuck with the fa-la-la-la-las right through the verses on that. During the whole song, one of our moms was down on the stage tapping at Miss Nagel's feet, trying to get her attention, but Miss Nagel, more animated than I had ever seen, didn't seem to notice. As far as I could see out in the audience, including my own parents right over here, every mother had her hand over her mouth. And every dad had his face in his lap. We ended with one last fa la 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 Miss Nagel spun around about again, this time to deafening silence. At which time the little kindergarten girl said, Miss Nagel, your bottom is showing. Miss Nagel froze. Mrs. Mihalich, our school nurse, made her way onto the stage. With a quick flick of the wrist, she hid that which had been so revealed. Miss Nagel turned back toward us now, tears pooling in her eyes. Flipped the page and said, again, children. And we sang the next song as we had never sung it before. After which our parents clapped for us as I'd never heard before or hardly since, I might add. But strangely, Miss Nagel did not turn around to acknowledge the applause. First time anybody could remember her not turning around to acknowledge applause. She just flipped the page and said, again, children. Song after song, applause after applause, tears rolling down her cheeks. I wasn't sure why she was crying. This seems odd to me now. I would have thought even as a second grader, I'd have been sharp enough to pick up on that one. You know, I just thought she was moved by her beautiful music. Yeah. <laughs> we ended with Silent Night. Our parents stood all by themselves this, this year. In past years, she'd always invited them to stand, but they stood all by themselves. We sang it a cappella. At the end, in that beautiful silence, all you could hear was the sound of her baton in that metal stand. She closed her music, put her hands like this, and said, Thank you, children. Turned, left the stage. On the way home, on the way home, I'm uh, in the back seat. My mom's in the passenger seat. My dad's driving. I'm actually up in the back window at that point. <laughs> I saw my mom turn to my dad, and I heard her say, Oh, that poor woman. And I don't recall hearing another word about that. Again, doesn't that seem a little odd to you? I mean, wouldn't you have thought the very next day one of my second grade buddies would have gone, <laughs> did you see? Wouldn't you have thought Mrs. Sayers, our fifth grade teacher, oh, she was strict. You know the type I'm talking about. She would have had to say to some deviant fifth or sixth grade boys, you boys will never discuss this in my presence or on these school grounds again. Now, do you understand? Say it, say it, say it, say it. Never came up till about a dozen years later. I'm home from college for the Christmas holiday, gathered around a family Christmas table, telling old family Christmas stories, and my dad lost it, tears rolling down his cheeks, making little wheezing sounds you don't expect out of a grown man. What, 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 do you remember Miss Nick? My dad said, he said something like, do you remember Miss Nick? And all of us had our faces in our food. I mean, the kind of laughter where you don't breathe for a dangerously long time. After which, all of us, almost on cue, went, oh. But it wasn't, oh, doesn't it feel great to laugh? You know that feeling. No, no, no. It was, oh, and almost to a person. That poor woman. Because you know the truth. Wasn't funny that night. Nobody laughed that night. I dare say no one was even tempted to laugh. It wasn't funny. It was just so 
painful. Because when you think about it, what's worse than revealing the very stuff you would wish to remain hidden forever? Huh? And I know one day I'm going to stand before my maker God and all that I wouldn't now want you to know, you'll know. So if you're interested, you know, just be patient. <laughs> and when it's all said and done, I believe that God will look down to me and, and, and say, He'll, he'll, say, he'll say to me, Bob, is this true? And I'll say, every word. And he'll say, then are you condemned for these sins? And the good news is, I don't believe I'll need to respond. Because I believe I'll hear a familiar voice saying, oh, no, no, Father, not condemned. For those are the very sins for which I died upon the cross. And Jesus will wrap his arms around me, and we will spend eternity together. Why do I believe this? Because his word tells me so. Because he's spoken to me and put that truth in my heart, and I've accepted that gift. He says, I want to be with you the rest of your life. I want to collaborate with you in this life and in the next. And I trust him for that. This is the process that we're in, this collaborating process, this collaboration. He's invited us into this. He said, I want to do this with you. I want your life to be blessed in a way that you can't even imagine. I want your family to be blessed. I want to work with, trust me, I want to work with you on this. Sure, my prayer that we, that would be the case for all of us. Let's pray, okay? God, thanks so much. We are grateful. We're grateful uh, that we can gather here together as uh, your sons and daughters. Uh, God, I pray for every uh, parent here, for their children. God, you know what's going on. Uh, you know the stuff that they're dealing with. Uh, God, I pray that you would, you would give them thoughts that they might grab. I pray, God, that you would speak to their hearts. I pray that they would discern your direction in your pathway. I pray that they would understand what you're calling them to do and, and who, who the, you're calling them to be. And I pray, God, you would bless every family here. pray this in your holy name. Amen. Thank you. God bless you, everybody. Thank you. Thanks.